From the Moan Broadcast Center, this is Film Week. Welcome, I'm Larry Mantle. Our critics this week are Angie Han, Claudia Puig, and Charles Solomon. This week's films include An Older One Recut, The Godfather 3 is now The Godfather Coda, The Death of Michael Corleone. Director Francis Ford Coppola re-edited the 1990 release. And we have two American immigrant-centric films. Farewell Amour follows an Angolan immigrant and his family as they arrive in Brooklyn. Minari focuses on a Korean-American family as they relocate to a farm in Arkansas. George Clooney stars in and directs the post-apocalyptic The Midnight Sky. Those films and more on Film Week right after NPR News. Welcome to Film Week. I'm Larry Mantle, joined this week by critics Claudia Puig, president of the Los Angeles Film Critics Association. Claudia is also senior programmer for the AFI Film Festival in Los Angeles. Charles Solomon, critic for Animation Scoop and Animation Magazine, and Angie Han, deputy entertainment editor at Mashable. We begin with Farewell Amour, the film starring Jamie Lawson, written and directed by Equa Masanji. Uh, the film is unrated, and it's uh, at the Arena Cine Lounge Drive-In and on multiple on-demand platforms. Angie, please begin with Farewell Amour. I really like this one. So it's a drama about an Angolan family who's reunited in Brooklyn after 17 years apart. The dad's been in the U.S. and the mom and the daughter have been in the teenage daughter have been in Tanzania. And it starts with them reuniting at the airport. And the way the film is structured, it is split into three chapters. And each one kind of tells the story of the reunion from a different family member's perspective, which gives it such an interesting way of looking at these stories. You know, characters or situations that you understood one way the first time around, you understand it in a different way when you see it revisited later on. And it just makes it such an such a compassionate, empathetic, moving exploration of love and family and what these ideas can even mean after so long apart. Claudia, what do you think of Farewell Amour? I agree 100% with Angie. I just, uh, it's so interesting to me that we have uh, our, probably the two best films that we're going to be talking about this week um, are about the immigrant experience. And what I love about this is it's about the simple day-to-day efforts of trying to connect um, as to maybe the, the huge act of immigrating or the, the you know, longing for your homeland. It's just, it's about some of the more quotidian aspects of adjusting and the collision of cultures and belief systems. And it's low key, it's captivating, it's so well acted. It's Ekwa Masangi's um, very impressive directorial debut. Uh, she's done some shorts before, but I just, you know, she really captures the difficulties of adjusting to a new new environment, the culture shock, and also the connection between these three people, this this small nuclear family. I, I love this film. And where are they located on uh, on their relocation? They're in uh, they're in Brooklyn, um, in a very small apartment that that he he had come 17 years earlier after the Angolan Civil War, um, the father, and had been working all those years to get his family uh, to you know to be able to uh, emigrate as well. And of course, with all the bureaucratic snafus of immigration, it's taken this long, almost two decades, to get them a visa. The film stars Jamie Lawson and Intare Guma Baha Mwina. Uh, what did you think of the acting in the film, Angie? 
Oh, the acting is great all around. I will say that I was especially impressed by the performance from um, the mother, Esther, played by Zainab Ja, because she's the character, she gets the last chapter, and she's also a character that by that point you've seen her filtered through the other characters' perspectives, and in some ways she seems like the prickliest and maybe even the least sympathetic, just because she's, you know, kind of difficult. But when you finally go into who she is, you just understand so much more about her. I was really moved by that. We're talking about the film uh, directed and written by Ekwa Misangi. The film's Farewell, Amour, it's unrated. You can see it at the Arena Cine Lounge, which now has a drive-in in Hollywood that they've set up in a lot there, and video on demand through Apple TV, Vudu, and Google Play. Minari, a film about a Korean-American family that immigrates to Arkansas. Uh, the film stars Stephen Yun and Yeri Han. It's written and directed by Lee Isaac Chung. Claudia, what did you think of Minari? I love this film. And at Sundance that everybody was talking about, and rightly so. It's a moving and heartfelt memoir um, by Lee Isaac Chung uh, about his family. It's It follows a Korean-American family in the early 1980s trying to make a go of farming in rural Arkansas and to assimilate in middle America. And it's this very nuanced look at family. It, it's, you know, it could be also called a drama, but it's it, there's so much more to it. Um, and it's so specific and it's so detailed and yet like the, you know, the best personal stories, it feels universal because it's, you know, a story of childhood and family and all of that is relatable. Um, and again, it captures the immigrant experience as we talked about with Farewell Amour um, and also the lure of the American dream. I just feel like it, it's, it's modest and yet it's just so deeply felt and poignant. Minari, Angie. I, I'm with Claudia. I love this film. I saw it at Sundance and it just feels like a warm hug from someone you have known for a long time. I One thing that really blew me away, which Claudia kind of alluded to, is the cultural specificity. It actually happens that I'm about the same age as the boy in the movie, also with Korean-American immigrant parents, though they were not farmers in the Midwest. And the details of their lives, their homes, like the props in it, all that stuff just felt so familiar to me. And in particular, I was really blown away that the language that they speak is just spot on for that time period and, you know, the ages that the parents were when they came over, the age that the kid was when he was absorbing this language. Like, I was just, it, it felt like coming home. Yeah, I was going to say, it sounds like you felt like you knew these people, even though you didn't have the same environment in which you grew up. Yeah, and I mean, as Claudia said, it's something, it is a story that I think could be universally appreciated. Like, it's a lot of that is just, this is, it's really well written, it's really well acted, you are going to feel like you understand these people and are and are familiar with their story, even if you, even if it's completely alien to your own experience, but as someone where certain elements of it were, did feel like they were drawn from my own life. It just felt like, oh yes, I, I know what, I know what this is. Yeah. And, and Claudia elaborate a bit with Minari on the aspects of it that really drew you into the family's life. Well, I'm so glad to hear from Angie that it felt so authentic because, you know, as a person who is not Korean, I, I wasn't sure about that, but it, I heard that it was an all uh, Korean or Korean American cast, which I really appreciated. You know, because sometimes there's subtleties there. I know Tina, you know, like they'll do a Latina movie that's about Mexicans, but they'll have Puerto Ricans and Cubans. And I'm guessing that an Asian movie might do the same thing where it's about Koreans, but they might have Chinese actors. And not that that is necessarily a problem, but it, it might, you know, undermine some of the authenticity. So I, 
I'm really happy to hear her say that. And I, you know, one of the things that stood out for me, of course, is a wonderful lead performance by Stephen Yoon as the family patriarch in Okja, um, where he worked with Bong Joon-ho and Sorry to Bother You and Walking Dead, um, and in the wonderful Chinese film Burning. Um, but every, I mean, the casting is so great. The grandmother, who's hilarious. And there's this whole, there's a lot of heart and humor to it, as well as it being insightful and intimate and moving. And uh, the relationship between the little boy, David, and his grandmother, who he does not see as being grandmotherly at all, because she doesn't do the things that he thinks grandmothers should do, like bake and rock in a rocking chair again. Or she likes, she's kind of foul mouthed and she doesn't cook. And, you know, none of the things that he's hoping for. Um, so I loved the relationship between David and his grandmother. I also really liked the older sister who was a, a lesser character, but, you know, just felt so believable. And I read somewhere that the director uh, wrote down 80 visual memories from his childhood, um, from when he was about the age of the daughter he has now. And, you know, he remembers his parents' heated arguments. There's there's a scene where they have an argument and the, uh, the kids send these little... Uh, airplanes in saying stop fighting don't fight hmm. and you know these little details that you know are just so authentic they're not you know it's just very specific and and just fascinating and i just love this film we're talking about minari which is in a one-week awards qualifying run at the mission tiki drive-in in montclair then it gets its wide release in mid-february of 2021 but if you want to see it for this limited week run it is at the mission tiki minari's rated pg-13 written and directed by lee isaac chung the documentary Giving Voice follows the August Wilson monologue competition, which draws thousands of high schools as uh, high school students as entrants. The film is directed by James D. Stern and Fernando Vienna. Charles, what do you think of Giving Voice? Well, this is my favorite film of the week. I did not know about the August Wilson uh, monologue competition, but high school students all over the country prepare a monologue from one of his century's plays cycle, and they give it in competition with the winner, the winners in the local areas going to New York, where they uh, actually get to read their or deliver their piece on Broadway. Uh, it's a very well-made documentary. They build a lot of suspense. You learn a lot about a, a handful of the applicants, what the words mean to them, how they're using them, and stars like uh, Viola Davis and Denzel Washington, who've appeared in Wilson's plays, are there discussing the significance and providing encouragement. I, I thought it was a terrific film. Giving voice, Claudia. Yes, I agree with Charles. This is an excellent, uplifting documentary, which, you know, we could use some uh, right now. It's, a lot, it's very inspiring. I also was not familiar with the August Wilson monologue competition, although my daughter, who went to uh, Polytechnic, where your son went, Larry, she was familiar with it. Uh, it follows these six competing students. And in addition to, you know, interviewing these amazing students, who are so talented. Um, it's interspersed with, with interviews with Viola Davis, who is an executive producer on the film. And her insights uh, in her on-camera interviews are so compelling. Class in acting or life. Jenzel uh, Washington has interviewed Stephen McKinley Henderson, and we also learned this is something a little different from uh, you know similar kinds of documentaries like Spellbound or Mad Hot Ballroom, which I love. I love those kind of documentaries. 
but we learn about the process of the judges as well. We, we sort of see what it, they're looking for and what they see in the competing students, which I found really fascinating. Um, you know, and you get a little bit about the lives of each of these students and what they've had to overcome, the hurdles they've had to overcome to get to this place. And they even follow a student who wasn't one of the winners, um, you know, who, but who we get a sense is going to go on to great things has a lot of raw talent. Uh, it's just, and also it's very interestingly timed for, uh, Netflix because, you know, this is about August Wilson and his lasting impact. And it's as much kind of a tribute to him. And then of course this dovetails with the fact that they will have Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, uh, coming out too. So we'll, you know, we can appreciate the words of August Wilson by professionals as well, but it's just, it's really great. It's really inspiring. Giving Voice the documentary, rated PG-13, James D. Stern and Fernando Vienna are the directors of the film. I know I've talked about this before, but as a huge fan of August Wilson's plays and had a chance to talk with him on, on many occasions, I'd always make a point of being opening night when his, his productions would be in Los Angeles. And I'd usually be sitting close to him, and he'd mouth along to his own writing as the actors on stage performed it. And I would take a mental snapshot of of August Wilson, his lips moving as though he was giving voice as he's watching that performance. And how many times had he seen his productions of that and yelled, yet still silently speaking those words? Giving voice, rated PG-13 on Netflix. Wander Darkly stars Sienna Miller, Diego Luna, and Beth Grant. It's written and directed Directed by Tara Mealy. Wonder Darkly, Angie. This is a this is kind of a strange film. It's a drama about a couple who get in a car accident that leaves one of them, Adrian, played by Sienna Miller, convinced that she is dead. And then it takes on a really surreal uh, bent from there. It starts at what seems to be the end of their relationship. The couple who have just bought a house and had a baby is seems to be on the verge of breaking up when they get in this terrible car accident. And then as Adrian is recovering, her boyfriend, played by Diego Luna, starts to retell the story of their past in an attempt to convince her that she is, in fact, still alive. So then the film kind of jumps back into their past. It, it, sorry, it jumps back and forth. And it, it's almost like eternal sunshine in that way where you are watching these memories play out, but you are watching them from the perspective of the present. And I that's one thing that I think that it does pretty well. Like it captures that a relationship isn't just a single point in time, but every point along that period of time. That said, some of it got a little too cutesy and sentimental for me toward the end, so it didn't entirely work, but the lead performances alone, I think, make this worth watching. Wander Darkly, Claudia. Yeah, I generally agree with what Angie said. I I think I might have liked it a jot more. Um, I think I have a soft spot for movies like, I loved Eternal Sunshine, I liked It's a Wonderful Life, Heaven Can Wait, you know, those uh, kinds of time bending romantic movies where you're looking at your life from a different time in your life. Um, I will say this is probably a little bit more ambitious uh, and, and, you know, there are some moments where it doesn't quite work, but I think the casting of the two leads really is what makes it work. Their chemistry, the chemistry between Sienna Miller and Diego Luna is convincing. We, we believe their relationship. Um, so the really terrific performances um, it can be a little confusing. I did watch it twice, but I will say that one of the things I, I love about it too is um, 
I, I think this is one of Sienna Miller's best performances, and Diego Luna is very soulful and winning. And I love that they embrace the multiculturalism of Los Angeles um, and the Latino community. They, there was a, a moment at a Day of the Dead celebration, and then also incorporated Mateo's Mexican heritage. And some great, um, uh, great locations, absolutely. Wander Darkly is the film. It's rated R. You can see it at the Vineland Drive-In and the industry, and it's on multiple on-demand platforms. We'll continue on Film Week in just one minute. So glad you're joining us for Film Week. I'm Larry Mantle with critics Angie Han, Charles Solomon, and Claudia Puig. Next up is the comedic drama Let Them All Talk, starring Meryl Streep, Candace Bergen, and Diane Wiest. Uh, Steven Soderbergh, the director, Deborah Eisenberg, the screenwriter. Claudia, tell us about Let Them All Talk. It's it's about uh, Meryl Streep playing a celebrated author, um, who takes a cruise across the Atlantic with some old college friends that she's kind of estranged from. Um, we're not exactly sure of her motivations, but we know that she's going to accept an award. That's a prestigious award in London, and she uh, can't fly. And so she brings along her nephew, who's played by Lucas Hedges, and then her literary agent kind of doesn't stow away, but she kind of gets on the on the cruise as well to make sure that uh, that Meryl Streep's character is is writing uh, as she has promised a manuscript. It's not a heavy or complicated story. Um, it's uh, but because it's you know Steven Soderbergh is the director. It's it's intriguing. It's enjoyable. Um, I was thinking of like if Love Boat had been done by Robert Altman, um, but <laughs> it doesn't quite have the romance of Love Boat, I guess, but it definitely has a Robert Altman kind of feel to it. Uh, it feels unpolished in, in an appealing sort of way. It's genial. It's uh, a character study, I guess. When and when you get people like Candace Bergen and Diane Weiss, who are her old college friends, and Meryl Streep together, and then you know such a good young actor as Lucas Hedges, Gemma Chan as a literary agent. When you get all those people together, you know you're bound. And you know, presumably, they did actually go on this cruise. Uh, it was filmed over the course of the ten days, I guess, or eight days of the cruise. Oh. Uh, it feels smart and enjoyable, and sophisticated, light, but but so well acted and well written that it's. It's definitely worth the time. Let them all talk. What did you think, Angie? I liked it. I think maybe a little bit less than Claudia did. Apparently, it was largely improvised, and it really shows in ways both good and bad. So there's a looseness to it that feels like the the stuff of life. And obviously, this cast is more than up to the challenge of doing these very largely improvisational performances. And so when so when they're walking into a room or when they're talking, you get such a strong sense of who these people are. Where it doesn't work quite as well, I think, is when the movie is then trying to do plot stuff or to loop in some of the bigger themes that it's trying to get at. And then sometimes it can feel a little bit forced or like it just it's just kind of grasping, but never quite gets there. That said, there are worse ways to spend a couple of hours than on a cruise ship with these very colorful and interesting and charismatic actors. Yeah, I was going to say, just with that cast, uh, you know, hearing them do stuff should be fun. Let Them All Talk, Steven Soderbergh, the director, it's rated R, and it's streaming on HBO Max. I'm Your Woman stars Rachel Brosnahan, Julia Hart as the director and co-screenwriter with Jordan Horowitz. Angie? I'm Your Woman actually turns out to be part of a, a unofficial trend of movies, of gangster movies about gangsters' wives. You know, the characters that in a traditional gangster movie kind of shows up and freaks out and then is shuttled off to the sidelines. In this case, 
Jean, played by Rachel Bosnahan, is a wife who knows no- next to nothing about what her husband is, has been up to. She knows he's a criminal, but not much more than that. And then something comes up where she has to spend a lot of the movie on the run, being shuttled from place to place without any saying where she goes or who she's with. It makes her a very passive protagonist, which to some people might be a frustration, but I found it to be really interesting. I mean, passive people are passive too. And the movie is so interested in her interior journey toward agency. And Rachel Brosnan puts in such a compelling performance that I was never less than mesmerized. I also would be remiss not to mention that this movie is just a treat to look at. It is set in the 70s and has these amazing, gorgeous 70s costumes and sets and all that. It's worth watching almost just for those details alone, but it is, I think, a very smart and savvy revision of a genre staple. Uh, We're talking about the film I'm Your Woman, starring Rachel Brosnahan, Julia Hart, the director, uh, and co-written with Jordan Horowitz. It's rated R on Amazon Prime Video. The documentary Assassins looks at the two women convicted of assassinating Kim Jong-un's half-brother, Ryan White, the director of the documentary, who will be interviewed later on Film Week by our John Horn. Claudia, what did you think of Assassins? Um, I liked it. I thought it was uh, observant and ultimately pretty riveting. Uh, It's very methodical, and it's an investigative documentary, um, it plays at times like a political thriller, maybe a methodical political which almost sounds like a oxymoron. But, um, you know, for those of us who are maybe only passingly familiar or even unfamiliar with the assassination of Kim Jong-nam, the uh, half-brother of Kim Jong-un, um, this is kind of, you know, it's a new, it, it's very it usefully kind of fills in all the details that we need to know about the geopolitics. Um, these two young women were essentially pawns. They were accused of murder, but the and the question was, were they highly trained operatives or were they just somehow duped into poisoning King Jong Nam? And uh, the documentary really falls on the, the latter uh, part of it. And what really stood out to me was how women are just seen as kind of disposable. Um, these were two young women. One was, um, they, were, they were immigrants. One was from Vietnam. The other one, um, I believe was from Indonesia. And, um, you know, they were, they were sort of duped into thinking they were doing prank videos and told to accost this man that they didn't know and put some powder on his face. And um, that ended up killing him. And it just, you know, the idea that there were so many more powerful people behind them and that these women were were seen as, as, you know, easily disposed of um, is really stood out. And I liked that the filmmaker had the focus on the women as they were pawns in this complicated scheme. Um, so there's there's a lot to unpack and a lot to uh, appreciate in this documentary. The film is Assassins, the documentary from filmmaker Ryan White. Angie? It's very much one of those the truth is stranger than fiction type stories, and I appreciate that the filmmakers don't sensationalize what is ultimately, in many ways, a very, very tragic and upsetting story. And it is, and the way that it's told is very easy to follow. There's footage from the time, CCTV footage and news footage and interviews with people who knew them and some, a few infographics and experts weighing in to fill in some of the missing context. So it's pretty straightforward. It's a really riveting, the story itself is just really riveting. I do think that it's one of those documentaries where what you'll remember is the narrative more than the style or the perspective or any deeper insight. I I wanted a little bit more about what it all meant, I guess. 
I, it, to me, it kind of felt like this was an interesting introduction to the story. Now I wish I could dig a little bit deeper and learn a little bit more. And uh, hopefully there will be more to learn in the interview of Ryan White, the filmmaker by our John Horn. The documentary Assassins is unrated. It's on Lemley's Virtual Cinema. And then mid-January, it's available more broadly on on-demand platforms. The Japanese animated film Lupin III, the first, (laughs) rather confusing title, uh, is written and directed by Takashi Yamazaki. Charles? Well, Lupin III is is a very long-running franchise. The character was invented in a manga in 1967. It's been running ever since. There have been six different TV shows, 11 animated features, including Hayao Miyazaki's first feature, was uh, a Lupin the Third caper. The character is supposedly the descendant, the grandson of Arsène Lupin, the uh, criminal created by Maurice Leblanc uh, decades ago. This is the first installment in this long-running franchise, though, that's done in CG. And one of the charms uh, and appeals of anime has been its hand-drawn nature. We're not sure how long that's going to be sustainable, so they're This is one of the first experiments at doing a more American-style 3D CG film. Uh, The films were never terrific animation, and they do capture a lot of the sort of trademark expressions and poses and actions of Lupin and his gang that includes a a gunman and a samurai. Uh, Its two problems are that it's very, very talky. There are these big Morris the Explainer scenes And it gets out of control in some ways that because special effects are so easy and relatively cheap to do in CG, Lupin is dealing this time not with a a bundle of money or jewels or fabulous antiques, but a super weapon left by a tribe of aliens to humanity that some Nazis are trying to get a hold of in the late 50s. And you just don't need all these huge realistic explosions Uh, in Lupin's fantasy world. But if you're a fan of this series, you're clearly going to want to see, well, how do they bring him to life in the new medium and how effective is it? And is this how the rest of of Lupin's adventures are going to go? We're talking about Lupin the Third, the first, as the title of the animated film. It's streaming on Apple TV Plus uh, starting on December 15th, and the film is unrated. Takashi Yamazaki is the director and writer. A newly edited version of Godfather 3, The Godfather Coda, The Death of Michael Corleone, is out on on-demand platforms. Al Pacino, Diane Keaton, Talia Shire star, Francis Ford Coppola, of course, directing and co-wrote the screenplay with Mario Puzo, who wrote the original novel that was the source material. The film's rated R. Angie, what did you think of this re-edited Godfather 3? I don't think it's controversial to say that this is that Godfather three, the original is not uh, as beloved as the first two. And I think that if you have strong feelings about the original, I don't think that this cut is going to significantly change your mind. If you loved it, you're probably still going to love it. If you hated it, you're probably still going to hate it. The major change comes in the opening scene that cuts out some of the unnecessary setup and sets up the plot a lot faster and introduces Vincent Corleone, which is a major character a lot sooner. And it also cuts the ending a little bit, 
earlier, but most of the middle is the same. It does improve the pacing and kind of gets rid of the what I thought was kind of a cheesy over literal ending and so it improves the pacing. But otherwise, it's very much the same movie. I've always been a sucker for movies about men looking back at their lives full of regret and guilt. So this one very much did it for me. I really enjoyed it. Well, I'm, I'm glad to hear it's not just men who enjoyed that that genre of, of film. Uh, Claudia, what do you think of The Godfather Code of the Death of Michael Corleone? I think I was a little less high on it than Angie. Um, I, it's intriguing to me that Coppola, the way he likes to tinker with his films, you know, it must be fun to tweak and move scenes around like puzzle pieces, you know, after you've put it together a certain way. And, you know, he's, of course, he's done it with The Godfather here and other times and Apocalypse Now and Cotton Club. This could be his most effective rescue effort, I guess. Um, it is more streamlined. It's a bit clearer. I do think the the beginning is better. The ending is better. Um, you know, it's also not controversial to say, I think that, um, you know, Sofia Coppola was famously trounced for her stilted performance and it doesn't, it's not any less stilted here, but I think we see it through a different lens because we know what an accomplished director she's become. So, and she was only 19. So I, I kind of looked at it with a certain measure of, um, kind of affection, like, Oh, <laughs> uh, there she was trying to be an actress, but she's really a good filmmaker. Um, but I don't know. Um, I, I feel like you, I almost don't see any point for Godfather three, I guess is what it, you know, when you've, you've ended a story so beautifully with Godfather two, why would you go back and, and continue it? So I wasn't as much of a fan. Uh, also the priests and bankers and accountants aren't as interesting as gangsters and casino folks and all that. So, you know, this is very focused on the Vatican and it's kind of crazy. At one point they try to uh, come up with this notion of, uh, you know, the death of John Paul, Pope John Paul was the, First, I guess it was. Um, anyway, I, it just does. The story itself doesn't really come together for me, um, just like it didn't with Godfather Three. But I, I will say he's approved it. The Godfather Coda: The Death of Michael Corleone, uh, Francis Ford Coppola's re-editing of The Godfather Three. It's rated R. Available on multiple video on demand platforms. The documentary Gunda uh, comes from Europe. Angie, what do you think of Victor Kosakowski's film? I think that like his last film, Aquarella, it is very, it's a film that requires a lot of patience, but if you can get under its spell, it's very meditative and has almost a hypnotic quality. It has a point, but it's mostly just letting its images and action do the talking. There is, I believe, no dialogue in this and nothing like what you would describe as a plot. So you're just watching these long shots of these farm animals going about their day in very beautiful black and white. It might not be for everyone, but I do think that I was really mesmerized watching it. You just feel like this is an experience that I would not get as someone who lives in the city. So this isn't like Babe, where the uh, where the animals talk. Uh, no, it is not like Babe very much, except that there are pigs, yes. And the pigs are very cute still. All right. Gunda is the documentary from director Victor Kozakowski. It's on Lemley's Virtual Cinema and on Film Forum's Virtual Cinema. It's rated G. Coming up, we'll hear what our critics think of Alex Weedle. This is the fourth film in Steve McQueen, the writer-director's Small Axe anthology. Each week, our critics have reviewed the film's as they've come out on Amazon Prime Video. Uh, Shea Cole stars with Jonathan Jules and Robbie G in this fourth film in the anthology. We'll hear about that coming up. Also, The Midnight Sky, starring George Clooney and Felicity Jones, Clooney the director 
of the film. It's Film Week on 89.3 KPCC and the KPCC app. We'll be back in just 90 seconds. It's Film Week on KPCC. I'm Larry Mantle. So pleased to be joined by critics Charles Solomon, Claudia Puig, and Angie Hahn. Next up is Alex Weedel, the fourth film in writer-director Steve McQueen's Small Axe Anthology that is streaming on Amazon Prime Video. McQueen co-wrote the film with Alastair Siddons. It stars Shay Cole, Jonathan Jules, and Robbie G. Claudia, what do you think of Alex Weedel? Series, and um, I really uh, appreciated this segment as well. Um, it's, uh, I think Shay Cole is, is excellent. He has this haunted quality that works really well. He is, it's a story of the real life British novelist, uh, Alex Weedle. And um, it's a really interesting trajectory of a young man who comes from the poorest origins and his coming to kind of blossom as a human being, as an artist. Um, and also it looks uh, at the Brixton uprisings of the early 1980s, which feels incredibly timely given the Black Lives Matter reckoning. Um, you know, some of the other installments were maybe um, more tightly focused in time, but since this is following, it's not a biopic because it is again, only an hour and, and, and it's not meant to be a biopic, but it sprawls, kind of covers the, the first 20 years of this subject's life. He's now about 60 Alex Weedle, and he was a consultant on the on this film. Um, it, it goes back and forth in time, and I, I like that it's kind of just a snapshot. It's not trying to be, you know, all inclusive, comprehensive. It's um, it's kind of this sketch of when um, this character Alex or this person um, is thrown into a jail cell, and he has a cellmate who's a Rastafarian guy who kind of uh, instead of uh, fighting with him as he as Alex is trying to do, he, he kind of takes him, he gives him some compassion, takes him under his wing in a sense and gives him some tutelage. Mm. And that's something that he had never experienced before. No one had ever really been kind to him before. So uh, I really liked it. Alex Weedle from writer-director Steve McQueen, Angie. I largely agree with a lot of what Claudia is saying. It's not trying to be this sweeping biopic that covers his whole life or anything, but I actually thought that it, I wasn't sure that the amount of his life that it covers that it landed on quite worked. The frame, the part that Claudia is talking about with the prison that ends up just being a framing device for the rest of the story. And it feels a little bit clunky with like the cellmate literally being like, what's your story? And then the film flashing back and then and it ends with the, well, I hope it's not too much of a spoiler, but the cellmate kind of setting him on the, the journey that will be the path for the rest of his life. So I kind of wondered if maybe it would have benefited from being a little bit longer or a lot shorter. I am not sure. That said, I mean, Shea Cole is just incredible in this. Claudia mentioned his haunted haunted quality, and he just has this such an aching vulnerability. You just want to reach him out and give him a hug. And of course, like with all Steve McQueen movies, the visuals are really striking and very intentionally composed. Like there's a record store scene that takes you from his first day first days visiting to his later days as a regular that I found to be really interesting. So I, I liked it, maybe not as much as the other films in the series, but still very much a worthy use of time. Alex Weedle is the fourth film in the Small Axe Anthology series, streaming on Amazon Prime Video. It's unrated. The Midnight Sky, a post-apocalyptic uh, set film, directed by George Clooney, 
who stars in it with Felicity Jones and David Oyelowo. Uh, Tiffany Boone also uh, stars in the film. It's written by Lily Brooks Dalton, based on the book Good Morning Midnight. Angie, what do you think of The Midnight Sky? It is one of those sci-fi dramas that's trying to work in a more emotional mode, kind of like Arrival or Gravity or the one that it maybe reminds me the most of, which is The Martian. But the problem is that the emotions I don't think quite work. It lives or dies by how much you're invested in the characters and their arcs. And the character work is somewhat uneven. Every character seems to get like one personality trait. And George Clooney's character, he plays a scientist who is back on Earth trying to warn a ship coming back from Jupiter not to land on Earth because the Earth has been completely ruined. The George Clooney character might actually kind of get the shortest shrift of all in that regard. So the plot so it's, you know, it's beautiful at times. There are some scenes that are very stunning, but on the whole, I was just left a little cold by it. Claudia, what do you think of the midnight sky? I agree. Uh, and since it's in the Arctic, I guess you know, being left a little cold, it was sort of inspiring us to feel that way. Um, it's visually stunning and um, it's ambitious, but I just felt like it's a little narratively lacking or maybe, a, a, you know, lacking in, in uh, the emotional oomph that it should have had. I admired it more than I enjoyed it, I guess. And, and I thought that it also borrowed from like Solaris and Moon. Um, as well as The Martian and Gravity. Um, there's, I will say probably the best thing about it for me was Clooney's performance, the fact that he was directing himself. And then he also gave this performance. There's a soulfulness and a grace to his to him. And he almost seems to be really sort of eagerly embracing the fact that he's no longer young. Um, and, you know, he, of course, they age him up, but he looks pretty craggy. And, um, and in fact, he, I think this may be the first time they've actually used a different person to play him young. Um, it was Ethan Peck, Gregory Peck's grandson. Um, so that is interesting. Um, I, I felt like it kind of lacked some dramatic heft. Um, and, but I did sort of appreciate the contemplative, almost meditative performance from, from Clooney. And I liked the, um, I, I kind of divided up. There was this weird thing where it shifted to a different group of people played by David Oyelowo and Damien Bichir and Felicity Jones, Tiffany Boone, Kyle Chandler. And I was more interested in the other story that involved George Clooney and a little girl. So it just kind of left me like, oh, get back to that story. And uh, so it just didn't cohere as well as I would have liked. The Midnight Sky, directed by and starring George Clooney, rated PG-13. It's at the Vineland Drive-In in the City of Industry and in uh, Goleta at the West Wind Santa Barbara Drive-In. It'll be streaming on Netflix beginning December 23rd. The documentary, The Library That Dolly Built, refers to Dolly Parton and her literacy-focused nonprofit imagination library. Nick Geidner is is the director, Charles? Well, this was something else I knew nothing about, that Dolly Parton has a foundation uh, with some assistance from other sources. They've given away over 100 million books to young children. Uh, She says that her inspiration for this was not only that she loves to read, but her father, who was intelligent but illiterate because he had to go and work in the fields as a boy and was never able to go to school. So you enroll your child when he or she is born, and every month for the first five years, the child gets one book that's been chosen and that builds in a progression. Uh, They're all free. They come directly to the child. So there's the excitement of, you know, when you're very small, getting something in the mail. 
They encourage parents to read to children, which is, of course, an extremely valuable thing to do. Um, And you're just moved by this kind of what used to be called civic virtue, that uh, Dolly Parton is willing to invest so much of her money and herself in benefiting others with whom she has no contact. You certainly can't imagine the Trump Foundation doing something like this. Uh, The documentary wanders a little bit and sometimes talks a little bit more about Parton than about the children, but I found it quite moving and uh, was very impressed again that someone is willing to really go to bat for young children and see that they are getting the literary input they need when they're small. The Library that Dolly Built, a documentary from director Nick Geidner. It's unrated on Lemley's Virtual Cinema. And finally this week, we'll have to do it briefly, My Psychedelic Love Story, a Showtime-airing documentary from Errol Morris, which looks at uh, LSD uh, advocate Timothy Leary, uh, and woman with whom he shared his life for a number of years. Claudia? Yeah, this is a pretty entertaining um, history of counterculture and espionage from um, the point of view of uh, one of Leary's girlfriends, Joanna Harcourt Smith. I'm not sure how completely reliable a narrator she is. She did do a lot of acid, but uh, but it is she's very charming as a raconteur, and it's worth experiencing. It's intriguing and it's humorous. Uh, sometimes a little bit too rambling and freewheeling, um, and mostly you just want to go really. <laughs> throughout all of it. Um, but, you know, anything Errol Morris does is worth watching. I Angie, would say it's up there with his best. Angie, can you give us quick 20 seconds on my psychedelic love story? She's very charismatic, and it is fun to hang out with her for a while, even if I'm not sure what the stories really add up to. I had a chance to meet Larry and interview him late in life. By then, it's a lot of LSD under the bridge, I guess you would say, and uh, not quite as coherent at that point as would have been ideal for the interview, but I felt like I was meeting a historical figure at the time. My psychedelic love story is unrated. It's streaming on Showtime. So good to have you with us on Film Week. I'm Larry Mantle. The new documentary, Assassins, first made waves at this year's Sundance Film Festival. It follows the wild events surrounding the 2017 assassination of Kim Jong-un's brother, Kim Jong-nam, and the two young women who were accused of killing him. But there's much more to the story. KPCC's John Horn spoke with director Ryan White, who talks about trying to capture what really happened and why he thinks a cautionary tale is at the heart of the film. So I think this story broke right around the time that Donald Trump moved into the White House, and it feels like it was kind of lost in the coverage of his presidency and that people didn't really get what happened right. Is, is that more or less correct? Yeah, you hit the nail on the head. I I feel like for mostly for Americans, at least, that we saw this headline the moment it happened, which was February 2017. So it was Trump's first full month in office. You know, it's probably one of the biggest political assassinations of our lifetime and definitely the most spectacular. So it did grab headlines, but they dissipated very fast with with uh, Trump taking office um, on the American airwaves. And so I think the film provided a really unique opportunity. I mean, even for myself personally, I knew nothing about this story minus the headline. So I knew nothing about what happened to these two women. I I assumed they were guilty, that they were part of the North Korean regime. 
And so I think it presented a really unique opportunity to have a massive, you know, I hate to, I hate to relegate it to a true crime story, but true crime on the largest geopolitical level, but nobody knew the real story. So, you know, I'm kind of hopeful that audiences go into, go into this not looking it up because I think most American audiences won't know at all what actually happened and what happened to these two women in the end. As horrific as the assassination was, I think it is fair to say, without judging it, the plot was brilliant. I mean, the machinations, the casting of it, the lead up, the rehearsals, everything that went into this is beyond what anything John le Carre could write. I mean, it is genius, as dark as it might be, right? The biggest boon in making this film was that we got our hands on all of the CCTV footage from the airport that day. And in fact, the days prior and the days after, you know, when this was all being rehearsed and also uh, when the women were getting arrested later on. Um, and if you look at those thousands of hours of footage, which we piece together in the film, it is a very complicated, it almost plays out like a video game, I would say in some ways. It is a very complicated process that he used. And uh, your question is as good as mine on why he did that. You know, the, 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 the normal North Korean assassination MO before this had been dark alleyways or firing squad. And so to do something so public, you know, you have to wonder if it was purely about, you know, humiliating his brother who had been critiquing him for the last few years. We won't get into the trial because I don't want to spoil that, but I think it's fair to say the women were tricked. Siti and Duan, they are in tremendous amounts of trouble because they wanted to appear on camera. I think we can agree that that's kind of what got them in the place they were. And you're coming up to them and saying, we'd love to tell your story on camera. So what was their reluctance and how did you make them believe that you weren't doing what had just happened to them? In other words, tricking them into doing something that they didn't want to do. It's it's such a good question because I always say the, the biggest part of my job is winning over people's trust. That's what I'm constantly trying to do. And often that takes many years, uh, at least many months with certain people that I've worked with. And with these two women, they didn't know me. You know, for the first two years of making my film, I didn't know them. They were living in jail. They were facing the death penalty. Everyone thought that they were going to be um, executed. And so I would, my two main characters were, were untouchable in that way. And so I had to create a film about these two women without having access to the two women. And so I don't want to spoil the ending, but I will say getting them to participate was probably the most difficult part of this film. I think you and I and pretty much everybody around town can agree that Hollywood loves superhero stories, but the lawyers in this case, including one in particular, I think really define that term. They faced great personal and professional risk in taking on these cases. It's not as if North Korea hadn't already silenced someone it was worried about. How important was not only their work, but your access to them and telling the story because I think we don't fully understand, because it's not what the film is about, how dangerous this work was. This isn't a case more about uh, evidence that these women knew what they were doing. To me, it's more the lack of evidence that they knew what, that they were doing. I still have not seen a shred of evidence that says these women are trained assassins or were connected to the North Korean regime. 
And I have looked at everything from their digital imprint to their backgrounds, uh, you know, to their Facebook profiles. So um, that to me was, was what was so important to the film was that the lawyers were so transparent to us. And totally to your point, these lawyers are heroes. I mean, we were warned time and time and time while making this film that we should back off by, by different governments, by, you know, the emails coming into our inboxes and these lawyers were, they were the public face of this. I was behind the scenes making a film. They were the ones going in front of microphones saying North Korea organized this. Our clients did not. And, you know, they live, they live, you know, on the streets of Kuala Lumpur where North Korea and the North Korean, North Korea has an embassy there. They have a good Malaysia and North Korea have a good working relationship. So it's not like Malaysians are protected from, the North Korean forces, they live amongst one another. So absolutely, the legal teams for both of the women, I think, I think are, are quite heroic and some of the bravest people that I've ever followed. I think it's fair to say that the North Koreans and the people who organized this assassination plot expected the women to die from the VX nerve agent, and they didn't. And that feels like that's part of the story about surviving exploitation, you know, unknowing assassins, sex workers, do you feel that that's the larger story here about the exploitation of women and how these two women survived this incredible attempt to exploit them? 100%. I think our our guiding star throughout the film was always to keep it rooted in the women and what led up to this point. And, you know, we have parts about the Kim regime, and that is totally a Game of Thrones sort of soap opera type of a story, and it's very entertaining. And we have parts about geopolitics and the Singapore summit with Trump, but always we wanted our film rooted in who these two women were. And absolutely, I think at the heart of the film, this is about the exploitation of young women. And I think it is a cautionary tale about the internet because what always draw me to these two women, and especially now that I know them, they are like any 20-something woman that could be anywhere in the world. You know, I think it's easy to otherize this story in the sense of, um, you know, first of all, that these women are probably guilty, but second of all, that this is in a part of the world that's so far away and involves North Korea. But when, when you meet these women and you follow their lives, you realize that they follow the path, a universal path that's happening. And so much of that for young people now is geared around 15 minutes of fame for like it was for Dwan or seeking a better life and a better paycheck for her son like it was for Siti. So absolutely at the heart of the film I think is is the the dangers of of what that can what can happen. You know, I really do see it as a as a cautionary tale. KPECC's John Horn talking with Brian White, director of the documentary Assassins. It's available now on Lemley's Virtual Cinema. Film Week on 89.3 KPECC, the KPECC app, and podcasts everywhere. All of us wish you a wonderful weekend and happy Hanukkah.